Love that song. The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Job. We'll be looking at Job chapter 15 verses or chapter 15 through chapter 21. Job 15 through 21. Before we look at the text, please join me in prayer. Lord, we really appreciate the honesty of your word. That it doesn't offer false hope, but rock solid confidence. And Lord, we need we need hope in this life. And we confess that we are easily shaken. Lord, we're not as strong as we'd like to be. And our faith is not as strong as we would want it to be. So we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts and even that you would use the revelation that you gave through the the life of Job in this wonderful book. You would continue to to give us wisdom. You continue to strengthen our faith, continue to conform us into your likeness. Lord, you know the needs of each person here. You know what they've faced. You know what they're facing. You know what they will face. And I pray that you would bring comfort and help to them, even this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Job is rightly classified as a book of wisdom. And that's because wisdom is a massive theme within this book. And I would argue that one of the main points of the book really is to show the weakness of human wisdom in contrast to God's sovereignty and his sovereign purposes and it shows us the need for divine wisdom the really the need for divine revelation that is as much as we can understand about god and his ways just by looking at natural revelation it still doesn't give us enough to understand all that we need to understand and this this need for divine revelation and the weakness of human wisdom is particularly seen in the three cycles of deliberations between Job and his friends. And remarkably, each cycle actually demonstrates different philosophical structures that that the friends cling to in order to drive home their point that they're arguing. The first cycle, which we looked at last week, utilized what we could call a a pre-modern argument. That is... All the friends assume the reality of God and that the the earth functions according to principles that he has put in place to govern it. And the primary principle that they continue to emphasize was that because God is just, he will punish the wicked and he'll bless the righteous. And in this first cycle, the free friends make their strongest arguments. And, in, and we saw what they said about God is true. The flaw was that the principle that they continue to cite doesn't fit Job's situation. They, they don't know what they don't know. And they presume, they presume way too much. And in the second cycle of deliberations that we're going to look at this morning, we could describe as modern. Modernism 
uh, finds its root in the 16th century, in, particularly in the minds of two Christian thinkers, René Descartes and Thomas Bacon. And it began what we, what we could call as the Age of Enlightenment. And that's what, where modernism finds its roots. Now, Thomas Bacon, he suggested that truth was best discovered through inductive reasoning. In his book, Novum Organum, Bacon criticized the ways that medieval philosophers would make too many broad assumptions about the natural world. He, the, the hasty generalizations, he asserted, created great obstacles for other generations to work their way through based upon the assumptions that they had made. And so he believed that in order to arrive at truth, men need to make sure they get rid of all false ideas. And so he questioned all existing knowledge. And what instead he advocated is careful observation of everything around. Use, use of experimentation. What, he really became the father of the scientific method. And it was through this observation and experimentation that general conclusions could then be made. That's what's known as inductive reasoning. And so it's through examining all available data that one could determine if an idea was correct. Now, in contrast, is there's Rene Descartes. And he argued that truth could best be determined through deductive reasoning. Descartes feared that men could easily be deceived through their senses. And so this led him to also doubt everything. And he suggested that in order to determine truth, one, a person needed to start with a premise that they knew was absolutely true. And for Descartes, that premise was because he's able to think, he therefore must exist. So he, he coined that famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. That was the foundational premise in all of his reasoning. And based upon that premise, he was able to deduce other things that he, he thought were true. And both methods of identifying truth are valid, but both methods have some inherent weaknesses. Now, the weakness of inductive arguments is one needs to look at all available data, which often isn't something they can do. There could be exceptions to the norm, exceptions to the rule that doesn't come up in the experimentation. The problem with deductive reasoning is that every premise has to be absolutely true or else all the other premises that follow will be errant. And there needs to be a clear, a deductive premise needs to be true and it also needs to be applied rightly. And in their accusations against Job, the three friends lean heavily upon both deductive and inductive reasoning. Deductively, they point to this principle of God's justice. We know God is, God is sovereign. We know God is just. We know he's righteous and he punishes the wicked. Therefore, Job must be being punished by God given all of his suffering. Inductively, they reason that because all the people who they see suffering greatly are wicked and Job is suffering. Therefore, Job must be wicked. 
And the flaw in their reasoning isn't, isn't due to them not using their head. These are incredibly smart men. Their flaw is that they don't know what they don't know. And that's really the main point of all three cycles of deliberations. They, a person can, ha- can have a good principle, a biblical doctrine, but if they don't apply it rightly, and if they presume too much, they can cause great evil, in fact. Human reason is insufficient to understand God's purposes. That's what these cycles are supposed to, to show us. Men need God to reveal his plan and purposes in order for us to have any confidence in why things happen the way that they do. The outline will follow is very similar to last week's outline. His three friends will give their their counsel and then Job will respond to each one of them. Let's look first of all at Eliphaz's counsel beginning in chapter 15. Now, Eliphaz begins by rebuking Job because Job won't accept the counsel that all three are offering. And instead, he he continues to hold fast to his integrity, not admit where he sinned. And in verses 7 through 11, Eliphaz asks essentially this, Who do you think you are to disregard our godly counsel? We're speaking truth to you, Job. You would prefer to trust your own heart that you are blameless and upright rather than to see that we in fact speak for God. And all three of us unanimously agree that you're guilty. Who do you think you are to question God's counsel? He's so confident in his wisdom that he actually describes it as the consolations of God in verse 11. And his counsel is, is based on true theological principles. Namely, that God is absolutely holy, which he is, and man is totally depraved. These are principles that we would affirm. And what he says in verses 14 through 16 are spot on. What is man that he should be pure or he who is born of woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, referring to angels. And the heavens aren't pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. His point in that last verse is men sin as easily as they drink water. And in large quantities. Eliphaz is saying, if if God doesn't consider the angels to be righteous, he, he certainly wouldn't say that you're righteous and blameless, fearing God and turning away from evil. Because... You're a sinner. You're a man. And he then supports his doctrine, citing older, wiser theologians in verses 17 through 19. And the same way we might defend our principles in an argument with somebody by citing John Owen or John Calvin or John MacArthur. And after citing these sources, Eliphaz then asserts his fundamental principle in verse 20 where he says the wicked man writhes in pain all his days and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Again, here's the critical question. Is what Eliphaz is saying about God true? The answer is yes and no. It is true that God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And it's true 
that all men are sinners. Right? The Bible says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 5, 4 and 5. And all men are corrupted by sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Right? These principles are true. What Eliphaz is saying about God is right. Where Eliphaz is wrong is that he presumes that Job is suffering on account of God's punishing him. Now we know that's not true because we read... Job 1 and 2, and God gave us this text so that we would understand the context. That Job is not suffering because of sin. He's suffering actually because he's righteous. God structured Job this way to teach us this principle. Knowing right things does not necessarily make a person right in what they're doing. Like we need to be wary of ourselves because we can take a glorious thing like biblical doctrine and, and use it to undermine its very purpose. Right? The purpose of the Bible, the purpose of biblical doctrine is that we might know God and love him. And we can easily take that and by not teaching it accurately or lovingly convey that God is not what God actually is. Like Job's friends do. Truth not, not only needs to be rightly discerned, it needs to be rightly applied. And we see the devastating effects on, on Job himself. Because as Job continues to hear more and more of his friends' counsel, he begins to buy in to what they're saying. That God must be attacking me. Because there's no other explanation And that's really the essence of his response in chapters 16 and 17. God is punishing me. Therefore, I need a mediator who will defend me from him. Job begins his response in, in chapter 16. And of course, we know that Job's wrong here about God. God's not attacking him. God hasn't lifted a single finger against Job to punish him. Job is saying this, Job assumes this because of what his friends have said. Look at verse 9. His anger has torn me, speaking of God, and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. The metaphor he's using is he's depicting God as like a predator going after him as prey. And notice how he describes God's supposed attack on him and Verses 12 through 15. He says, I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he's grasped me by the neck and he's shaken me to pieces. He's also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me without mercy. He splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. I've sewed sackcloth over my skin and thrust my horn in the dust. Job is saying that, that that sackcloth that he put in, put on himself when he was mourning for his children is now stuck to his skin as if he's sewn it on because he's continually in mourning. He never stops mourning. 
It's a garment that he never takes off. And Job points to the evidence of how God has assaulted him from head to toe in his descriptions here. And like Eliphaz, he's, he's presenting his own body as evidence. Look, look at me. Look at the evidence on my body. I'm getting attacked by God. You should pity me. Yes, God has attacked me. He agrees with what Eliphaz is saying. But what he doesn't agree with is that he's done something wrong to deserve it. Notice verse 17. Although there's no violence in my hand and my prayer is pure. Job's saying, you, you describe the wicked insolently attacking God. Well, what about God attacking me? I'm the victim here. I haven't done any violence, but I'm the one being violently assaulted. I mean, just imagine getting brutally beaten. And then, and then going to court to, to, to stand as a witness against those who attacked you. And you find out. That in fact, you're the one that's being prosecuted and it's your attorneys who are bringing the prosecution against you in defense of those who beat you. That's what Job feels like is happening. You should be you should be supporting me and taking my case up against God, pleading on my behalf, offering up a sacrifice for me if there's something I've done and sinned. But instead, you're, you're taking his defense and attacking me. I'm the one that's getting attacked. That's Job's argument. And remarkably, even though he's bought into so much of his friend's reasoning, and he believes he's a victim of God's assaults, he still clings to hope in God. He says, yeah, okay, God is the one attacking me, but he's also the only one in whom I hope. Notice verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. It's remarkable that in, in all of his anguish, Job is becoming increasingly confident that God will vindicate him eventually. That he will answer his deepest longings. What, you, what you're, what you're going to see as Job continues is the suffering that he's experiencing and even the, the arguments that his friends are continuing to pummel him with, attack him with, it's, they actually strengthen his faith. And actually, that's what suffering does to the believer. As painful as it is, what suffering does is it, is it helps us to see God's promises more clearly. It refines our faith. It strengthens our faith. It, it, it burns away the dross, so to speak. Job's becoming increasingly confident in God, even though he believes he's being attacked by God. He continues to appeal with tears to God himself, he says in verse 20, and longs for a, a heavenly mediator who would plead with God on his behalf. And the rest of Job's speech in chapter 17 simply expresses his desire that he would soon die. It's like, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to be dead. And he actually expects that his hope will die with him. Look at verse 15, 17, 15. Where now is my hope? And who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? 
actually like the ESV here. I think it translates it better. We'll go down with me to the gates of Sheol. What Job is was asking is, is there is there hope for me beyond the grave? And this is this is what Jesus promised Peter. Right when Peter made that famous confession. When Jesus asked, who who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said this, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock. That is this hope, this confidence, this certainty. I will build my church and the gates of Haiti will not prevail against it. Jesus is telling Peter, for those who recognize Peter, what you recognize, they have an eternal hope. They have a hope that will follow them into the grave and will give them power to overcome the grave. Their hope won't die with them, as Job feared. The churches and Job's hope will not die because it is a living hope. Right? Remember what Peter said. We saw it earlier today. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Job says, this is what I want. This is what I hope for. And Jesus says, this is what I'm going to give you. But of course, that wasn't revealed to Job yet. It's been revealed to us. who have received the New Testament and all of its revelation. But Job didn't have this hope yet. This brings us to Bildad's counsel in verse or chapter 18. Bildad begins with taking issue with Job's description of God attacking him as if God was some beast, some predator. And he suggests that, no, Job, it's actually you who are tearing yourself apart on account of being unwilling to confess your sin. Because God is a just God. God has to punish the wicked, Job. God can't just sweep His justice underneath the rug. You're killing yourself by fighting against this universal principle that God will punish the wicked. Stop fighting against it and just admit that you're wicked. Look at verse 4. Oh, you who carry yourself in your anger... For your sake, is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place? What Bildad's asking is, do you think the the whole order of the universe should shift just so you don't have to admit your wickedness? Because you don't want to escape the punishment that you deserve on account of your sin. And he sets forth his foundational principle in verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out. The flame of his fire gives no light. And he defends this principle in the verses that follow by describing vividly what happens to the world, happens in this world to the wicked on account of their rebellion against God. And in his diatribe in this chapter, Bildad's essentially just trying to frighten Job into confessing and admitting his need to repent, admitting his sin. And similar to Eliphaz, Bildad defending his principle of divine retribution by citing examples in the natural world. Just look around you. Things don't go well for the wicked. 
right? If they don't go well for the wicked, wicked suffer, they perish, they die. Job, you're suffering, you're perishing and dying. Inductive reasoning, Job would conclude you're wicked. Just admit it. Stop fighting against these clear, wise principles. Job responds in chapter 19. And Job's response to to Bildad is essentially this. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm being attacked by God. But even so, I know my Redeemer lives. And He will save me. He says this in verse 4. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. His point is, you haven't pointed out any sin. Even if I've, I have sinned, it's, it's sin within my heart. Who do you think you are to presume that you see sin in my heart? Or many Christians will sometimes do this. They'll, they'll presume, oh, because I see these consequences, I know what's going on in your heart. I know you're sinning. Because when I do those sorts of things, when I say those sorts of things, when I act that way, I know the sin in my heart. Therefore, I know you're sinning. Just saying, you... You don't know my sin. You haven't pointed out any objective sin. You're just making assumptions. His friends presume they know his heart because of what they observe outwardly. They're acting as if they were God, assuming to know things that only God himself can know. And so Job says this in verse 5. If indeed you vaunt yourself against me, and prove my disgrace to me. Know then that it's God who's wronged me. He's closed his net around me. The imperative, actually, that Job's use here is, is used to induce a solemn affirmation. Know for certain that it's God who's attacking me. God is the one that has wronged him. God is the one perverting justice. So, so clearly Job is speaking wrongly about God. Job is sinning with his words here. He has been pushed to the point where he speaks wrongfully and he'll be rebuked by that by God in later chapters. But it's important to recognize at the same time, this is how Job actually feels. It's wrong, but Job really believes this is what's going on. He's convinced by no help from his friends because he has no other explanation for what he's experiencing and his friends seem to support it. And so because he knows of no sin that he's committed, he's concluded, okay, if God's attacking me, it's, it's, it's not for anything I deserve. I don't deserve it. I haven't done anything to warrant this suffering, this loss. And in in this section, Job points out five ways in which God is against him. First of all, God won't even answer his prayers. Even when I do cry out to him, I hear no answer. He doesn't help me. Secondly, verse 8, God has trapped him. Everywhere he turns, God afflicts him. So it, it seems to Job that God is not just merely standing by and watching Job suffer, but God is doing everything he can to make Job suffer. Actively hunting him. In verse 9, he says, God has humiliated him. He stripped my honor from me. He's removed the crown from my head. The crown is a metaphor for, for the esteem and dignity that Job once had. Remember, he was, one of the, he was the greatest of all the men of the East. Well, no longer. 
He's, he's the worst, the lowest. God has broken him down, verse 10. God treats him as an enemy, verses 11 and 12. Right? And so from Joe's perspective, he can't turn to God for help. And he can't turn to his friends. They're all against him. He feels completely alone, completely abandoned. And that's his point in verses 13 through 22. His relatives and his friends avoid him. 13 and 14. His guests and servants ignore him. 15 and 16. Even his wives and siblings ignore him. They abhor him. Children despise him. Chapter 18, verse 18. His close friends abhor him. Verse 19. And on top of this, he doesn't even have his health. Verse 20. The, the implication here is even his own body is against him. He's got no hope. And that's why he says in verse 20, 21, instead of being attacked by his friends, he should be the object of their pity. Pity me, pity me, oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? And yet, despite feeling totally alone, abandoned by God and men, Job clings to remarkable hope. Look at verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. The word Redeemer, Ga'al, is a well-known word in the Old Testament. It comes up multiple times in the book of Ruth, where it's translated kinsman, Redeemer. It refers to the near kinsman who would pay off one's debts, who would defend the family, avenge a killing, marry the widow of the deceased. The, the, the kinsman redeemer was the one that would step in and help the oppressed and needy. Just saying, I know my redeemer lives. And it's interesting that Job expects no vindication in this life. Right? He expects he's going to die soon. Condemned and punished for crimes he didn't commit. But he knows with certainty that he's, he will be vindicated. Even though he's going to die. Because his vindicator continues to live. His redemption will happen, as he says, after my Redeemer rises or stands upon the earth. Kum is the Hebrew word. But this hope is clearly not one that he expects to receive in this life. Because look at what he says in verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, in the flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job is declaring absolute confidence in the resurrection. He's, he's prophesying the resurrection here. Job's next words are remarkable as well. For along with his hope in his vindication comes an expectation of judgment. Look at verses 28 and 29. He warns his friends about the reality that, that you're going to have to give an account for how you have spoken to me, for the accusations that you've wrongly laid against me. He says in verse 29, Be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is a judgment. And what Job says is absolutely true. All of us 
will have to give an account for every word that we have spoken. And, and what Job declares to his friends is true because it's proven at the end of the book when God condemns his three friends, 42.7. God says, my anger burns against you because you have not spoken of me what is right. And actually, Job has to offer up an, a, a sacrifice on their behalf before God will turn away his anger from them because of what they have said, how they've applied their wisdom to Job wrongly. And this is emblematic of the future day of judgment when all of us will give an account for what we've done. Jesus himself said in Matthew twelve thirty six, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. And we need to recognize that it's it's only on account of Job's friends counsel that lead Job to say what he says about God wrongfully, to accuse God of attacking him. Because, and we know this because after all of the assaults that fell upon Job in chapters 1 and chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, it says this, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. After everything that fell him, Job had complete confidence in God. And he appealed to God. He trusted in God. It wasn't until his friends came and started saying, no, no, God's against you. God's attacking you. And then Job finally buys into it. It's Job's friends in their supposed speaking for God that actually turned Job against God. They ruined him. Even though their counsel was rooted in good theology and true principles that were just misapplied. And this is why James says, in James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, brethren. For you know that the one who teaches will be judged with stricter, greater strictness, stricter judgment. And probably in response to Job's warning at the end of chapter 19, Zophar feels like he's got to put in his two cents. So this is Zophar's counsel. He presents his articulation, the same misapplied principles as his friends in verses four through five. Do you know this from of old, Job, from the establishment of man on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary? Job, don't you know that all the wicked are going to suffer? In verses six through 11, he he vividly describes how how the wicked people always perish in the end. And then in verses 12 through 22, he describes the internal torment of the wicked, the effects of sin upon themselves. He says, consider, consider what sin does to the wicked people, Job. And then taking a page from Bildad's playbook, in verses 23 to 29, Zophar vividly describes God's personal vengeance upon the wicked. And this is his point. The intensity of your suffering, Job, proves the extent of your wickedness. The intensity of your suffering proves the extent of your wickedness. What a comfort. This is Job's response in chapter 21. He says essentially this. Wait a second. 
He's really not just responding to Zophar. He's responding to all three of his friends. And he's pointing out to them, your inductive reasoning is false. Because, in fact, look around you. Most of the wicked people on the earth aren't suffering like you say they are. In fact, there's lots of good people who are suffering and lots of wicked people who are prospering. Good things do happen to bad people. Each of his friends have asserted how bad the wicked have it on account of God's just punishment. But the evidence that they cite isn't concrete. It's, it's theoretical. It's, it's like they're presenting evidence in a courtroom to make their argument of this principle. But instead of providing photos of the crime scene, they take some paints and they paint a picture and say, look at here's the evidence of how the wicked or the wicked suffer. It may be a good picture. It may even look real, but nobody would consider that as evidence of the crime scene. Or it's like a person showing a movie clip or citing a fictional story from a novel and using it as evidence to prove an argument. Right? Maybe colorful, it may even be real, but it's not evidence that you can use to prove a point. His friends assert that they're using sound, deductive, and inductive arguments, deductive and inductive arguments to prove their case. But Job points out here that their deductive arguments don't fit his situation at all. And their inductive arguments are cherry picking, so to speak. They're just picking and choosing what they want to provide as evidence. They're not looking at all the evidence. In fact, Job would say, you're not looking at most of the evidence. Because many wicked do prosper. It's as if Job pulls out pictures of all the evil dictators that have lived in the world, all the godless celebrities, all the wealthy pagans, and he's like, what about these guys? What about all these people who have slept around and committed multiple abortions? And what about these, this godly couple that can't have children, no matter how hard they try because they're infertile? What about this? Where's the proof of your assertions? A a glance around the world just seems to suggest the opposite. Verse 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or does their calamity fall on them? Does God apportion destruction in his anger? I mean, really? And even though his friends argue that the wicked die in infamy, Job says, actually, it's the opposite seems to be the case. And Job's right. Some of the most notorious rulers ever have continued to receive near idolatrous honor even after their deaths. Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Ho Chi Minh, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sung. They were all embalmed and continued to receive honor. Does the prosperity of the wicked suggest that God is unjust, that God is blind, that God is impotent? How will we make sense of the wicked getting away with so much sin and rebellion? Why, why is this the case? If God is indeed just and all-powerful, 
Why do the wicked continue and not die? Well, it's precisely because God's a merciful God. And He hasn't wiped mankind off the face of the earth. 2 Peter 3.9. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Brothers and sisters, the reason that wicked people prosper is because God is giving them time to repent. He wants them to repent. God in his mercy is giving them time. But if they die outside of Christ, if they die without trusting in the salvation that He's purchased on their behalf, they, they will be punished in full for all of their sin. But this, this really won't be experienced until after they die. But if they die outside of Christ, their hope, their pleasure, their peace will die with them. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God will punish the wicked for all their sin. He will. But this won't be experienced until after they die. And that's exactly why Christ has commanded us now to make sure that they know that the only means of escaping God's wrath that's available to them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he's commanded us to go and share the gospel to unbelievers. Christ has revealed to us the hope that Job longed for. He's revealed to us the hope that every man needs. But men will not learn of this hope unless they're told. The wicked will not learn that they can be saved from their sin. They can be saved from the hopelessness of this life, from all the pain, all the suffering. If they can escape it, they won't learn that unless they're told. Right? They're not going to learn this hope by mere human reason alone. They need to be told. Let's tell them. Heavenly Father, we want, we want to share the gospel. And Lord, as we see the wicked, even those who us, Lord, don't let us become hardened in pride or ungratefulness for the grace that we have received through Christ, but instead help us to be full of compassion. That we would perceive We'd perceive them as men without hope, women without hope. And that we'd be kind and gracious and bold in sharing with them the very truths that we have learned through the New Testament that you've given to us. Lord, help us to be faithful to reach the lost. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.